Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Uh, kids, if you'd like, there's some red folders in the back of the room that have outlines that you can fill in and follow along with the Word as it is preached this morning. For those who have not been with us regularly, I just want to let you know, we don't always preach about the end times, but we've been going through Matthew. And we are now in Matthew chapter 24, and starting last week, we're going to be in Matthew 24 for four weeks. And there's a lot of language in here that sure does sound like the end of the world, doesn't it? So uh, hang on, and let's enjoy and hear the Word of God this morning. I'll be reading Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I, uh, I wasn't born a pastor. Uh, prior to this, prior to my work in vocational ministry, I was in HR. And uh, in HR, one of my tasks was to interview people for jobs and, and if necessary, you know, hire, fire, that sort of stuff. And uh, one thing that I did in interviews that a, a good interview usually involves, rather than just asking questions like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? You know, how do you handle conflict? You, you say, tell me about a time when you, know, you faced an obstacle and had to overcome it. Tell me about a time you had conflict with a supervisor and what did you do about it? In fact, just the other day, I was on the phone being interviewed for a, for a reference for somebody else. No, I'm sorry, I wasn't interviewing for a job. That came out way wrong. <laughs> I was asked to be a reference for someone else, and, and the person calling did exactly that. Instead of saying, hey, what are this person's strengths or weaknesses? He said, tell me about a time you saw this person deal with this sort of thing. Tell me how you see the fruit of the Spirit in, in this person's life. You know, asking very, very good questions. Because actual behavior is what shows character. And what we see here, much of these verses today are about history that has already passed. A lot of it is about the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70, or C.E. 70 as some say it now. So if, if we're talking about something that's already happened, what does that have to do with us? Well, part of what that has to do with us is that how God delivers judgment and how He behaves in the midst of judgment reveals the character of God. Now remember, we talked about this last week and we'll talk about it again each, each week here in Matthew 24. Looking at verse 3, 
there's two questions that are going on in this chapter. Number one, the disciples ask, when will these things happen? Meaning the temple. When will the temple be destroyed? And the other thing is, what will be the signs of Jesus' return and of the end of the age? And sometimes in this chapter, Jesus is talking about one of those, the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the temple. Other times he's talking about his return and the end of the age. And sometimes he's talking about both at the same time because truths apply to both of them and we can't always distinguish which one he's talking about. But in these verses today, mostly it is about the destruction of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70, an event which was God's judgment on the unbelief of the Jewish people and, and their rejection of Him as Lord. And yet, in the midst of His judgment over them, God spares and saves His children. And so, the destruction of Jerusalem also gives us a, a preview of what to expect in God's final judgment of the world, a judgment on the world's unbelief and the world's rejection of Him which helps us to understand and answer this question. What do we learn of God in the midst of terrible judgment? It's like an interview asking of the Lord, tell me about a time when you brought judgment on a people. Because we're, we're going to learn from, from these actual events is the character of God. We were, we're going to see that in the midst of judgment, God's kindness is revealed to His children. In the midst of judgment, kindness. The first way that we see the kindness of God is that God in kindness warns His people. In verses 15-16, through 16, when you see this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You're probably thinking, I'm the reader and I don't understand. Help. You know, yeah, we, we've got questions about this. So let me... Let me tell you what we do understand about this. If you were to spend a lot of time reading the book of Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel, he, uh, there's four times in that book where he speaks of something called an abomination of desolation, which is either a, a heavy metal band or it's an apocalyptic language way of saying an abomination, a really evil thing of desolation. It causes great destruction. So when you see this evil thing that leads to great destruction being placed in the holy place, this is what Daniel describes in Daniel 11.31 in, in just one of those places. Forces from him, an invading king, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple. They'll come into the temple of God and the fortress and they shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And when Daniel speaks of it, he's actually predicting something that was going to happen a few hundred years after Daniel lived and a few hundred years before Jesus lived. The short version of it is that a conquering king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king, invaded, entering the temple in Jerusalem and putting up a statue of another god over the temple of the true God. Now, if what Daniel said already happened, why is Jesus speaking as if it was going to happen? Why did he say, hey, let the reader of Daniel understand what I'm talking about here? The point is, even though it already happened, what Daniel spoke of, evil does not rest. And evil continues and, and behaves in, in patterns. And in much the same way, there would come another day where another army would enter the temple of God's people and set up another profane thing, another abomination that would then lead to desolation in all of Jerusalem. 
And Jesus warned, when you see it happen this time, I want you to understand that it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to leave. If you are in Judea, run. Flee to the mountains. And sure enough, it did happen just as Jesus predicted. And when it did, it was unspeakably horrible. It was, for everyone in Jerusalem, it it was unimaginably bad. And it was so sudden that there was no time to waste. We see in verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, look, if if somebody's up on the housetop, these these flat roofs where you could dry fruits and you can put out your laundry, you could take a nap. He says, if you're up there, don't even waste time going down into the house. Okay, you just run. And if you're out in the field, don't think, hey, I want to go back and get a change of clothes. Don't. You run. That's how sudden the destruction and judgment would be. And here's the really hard part when I think about it. It's not just that judgment was coming. The hard part is that God sent the judgment. It's not just that he he knows the future and he sees this bad thing is going to happen and he's warning his disciples about it. No, he says, I'm going to send this judgment. And when we look over all of the Bible's history, we see God again and again judging evil. The flood. The Egyptians. The Canaanites. Nineveh. Israel. Judah, and if that was all that we knew of God, we would know that He is holy. We would know that He is just in punishing sin. We would know that He is righteous and that He brings down judgment. In Exodus 34, when revealing His character to Moses, describing Himself, God says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If that's all we had been told and all we had seen of God's character, we would still have to confess that He is holy and He is true. But that's not all we know. Because those verses in Exodus have a lot more to them than I just shared with you. If we were to back up to the previous verse, we'd see the whole thing is this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So yes, there will be judgment, but God in kindness warns His people before there is judgment because He doesn't delight in their destruction but desires their deliverance. So before the flood, He warns and prepares Noah and his family. Before Egypt suffered the plagues, He warned Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and His own people. Before Jericho's walls fell, He warned Rahab and spared her and her family. Before Nineveh was to be punished, he sent Jonah to warn them that they might repent. Before Israel and Judah were to be judged and condemned, he sent his prophets again and again and again. Do you see that God in his kindness is patient? Endlessly patient. Well, not endlessly. Because the stroke of judgment will fall. It waits the stroke of God's judgment, his punishment of evil waits, but not forever. It waits so that he can warn his children to flee the wrath to come. Don't take this lightly, my friends. I know many people prefer to think of one aspect of God. We want the, the kindness of God, but we don't want the judgment of God. We want the God who is loving 
and caring and accepting and forgiving. And we can't imagine and picture a God who judges and condemns sin and evil. And if that is, if we are only holding on to the parts of God we like and neglecting how he has revealed himself in other ways, we are serving a false God. Is like a video I saw this week. Some of you might have seen this of, of a woman who was on a news show uh, trying to demonstrate that, that her dog was a vegetarian. Because she had, had anybody seen this video? She, she had been training her dog and only feeding her dog salad. And she'd, she insisted, my dog loves the salad. He, I don't have to force him to eat it. He just, he just eats it up. He loves it. And watch, I'm going to prove to you that dogs are naturally vegetarians. So she put the salad out on one side of the table and put a pile of beef dog food on the other side of the table and called her dog in and said, now watch how he loves to eat his salad. You know what that dog did? <laughs> that dog just dove into the... No, no, you didn't, you didn't see it. Look, look, here it is. And she pulls him away and puts him in front of the salad and he swings his head back over and keeps eating that meat and she's just embarrassed. We do the same thing. I want God to be like this. I want God to fit my standards, to fit my values. I want a God who won't judge. I want a God who won't send anybody to hell. I want a God who forgives freely and without qualification and doesn't expect anything of us in return. To believe that, we have to neglect so much of how He reveals Himself to us and what He says of Himself. He is kind. God is kind, but His kindness is not in, in, in ignoring our sin and pretending it's not there. No, that's not how God expresses His kindness. His kindness is in making a way to save you from judgment. He is kind in that He warns you to flee. Jesus warned His followers that they would need to flee Judea and take refuge in the hills. They had to get away to a physical fortress, but we are not facing a Roman army or invasion. The real threat to God's people is not a sword or a bomb or even a virus. The real threat that we face is the judgment of God himself. And in kindness, God warns us to flee and take refuge, not to the hills, but to find refuge in himself. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. God warns you, He warns me that judgment will come and you cannot endure it. It will consume you. And your only hope is to leave everything behind. Don't turn around and go back for something else. Leave everything behind and flee to Christ. On the cross, the judgment of God was poured out. Jesus experienced the punishment due to sin. The judgment of God. He experienced death. And everyone who believes in Him will be spared the judgment of God because they find refuge in Him. In kindness, He warns us of this. But we see more of the kindness of God in this. Verse 22. Jesus says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God, in kindness, limits evil. Jesus had gone on to talk about how bad it was going to be when Jerusalem fell. Verse 19 and 20, he says, Alas, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. In other words, vulnerable people, nursing mothers, pregnant women who, who are not as mobile and who can't flee for their lives, they will be in a worse state. And, and 
the urgency, the suddenness of this means, he said, look, if it's in the winter, you know, in this culture in winter, the roads were muddy and unpassable. You couldn't flee. And you don't want it to be on a Sabbath either because all the Chick-fil-A's will be closed. You can't get any good food on the road. No, but seriously, actually, that's kind of what this means, that, that travel was restricted and prohibited on the Sabbath in the Jewish culture. And so if you're trying to flee and run for your life and it's a Sabbath, every gate to every city in, in Judea is going to be locked. And every home and every business is shut down. And there's nothing you can do to pick up food on the way or to find lodging. So he says, look, it's going to be bad, people. It's not going to be like you can say, well, it looks like Rome's going to be here in about a week or so. We've got time to get ready. He says, no, it's sudden. And then he sums it up in verse 21 by saying, for then there will be great tribulation such as there has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Based on the firsthand accounts we have of what it was like when Rome invaded Jerusalem, this does not sound like an exaggeration to me. It was horrific, unspeakably horrific. And yet, as we see in verse 22, God cuts short the evil of those days. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. When you read saved in that verse, it's not talking about, you know, I'm saved, you know, just being forgiven of sin, receiving eternal life. It's, it's, it's talking about being saved from the violence and devastation and slaughter of those days. Jesus says, look, if the Lord didn't end, end the tribulation of those days, everyone would just be wiped out. There'd be no one left. But why does God limit evil? He does it for the sake of His children, for the sake of the elect. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think this is a hard idea to really embrace. I don't think it's hard to believe. It's true. It's hard to see the beauty in it. Because God does limit evil, but He doesn't always stop it. He allows it to still happen. There is still war and still abuse and still pain in the world and in our lives. And we have all wept at the reality of it. I have wept with some of you as we reflect upon the evil that we have seen and experienced and endured and wondered why God didn't stop it. But I am still convinced that God in kindness limits evil. I think, I think of King Abimelech. Of course, you all were thinking of King Abimelech too, right? Uh, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, as they were traveling through a kingdom, King Abimelech sees Sarah and finds her beautiful. And Abraham lies and says, yeah, she's my sister because I don't want you to kill me to get my wife. And Abimelech takes her and brings her in to join his harem. And before he can do anything about it, before he's inappropriate with her, the Lord visits Abimelech in a dream and says, your life is forfeit. You're going to die because you've taken a married woman. And Abimelech says, no, no, I, I, I didn't touch her. I didn't even touch her yet. And the Lord answers in, in Genesis 20, says, yeah, you're right. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Did you know that God sometimes limits the evil that we do? Stops us from going too far? How gracious is that? Or perhaps you can think of Job and how when Satan desired to bring evil on him, God set boundaries and limits around what Satan could do. In Job chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hands. You can, you can mess with his family, you can mess with his property, you can mess with his servants, you can mess with his finances, everything, but don't touch him. The Lord set limits. 
And later, as, as Satan pressed to be given more freedom, the Lord in, in Job 2 says, Behold, now he's in your hand, only spare his life. You can afflict him, you can make him miserable, you can do whatever you want to his body, but you can't take his life. Okay? God, at times, limits the evil we do, but at times, he also limits the evil done against us. Now, I know in saying that, I might sound a little bit like Eeyore, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. You know, Eeyore, the gray donkey who's always down and pessimistic and melancholy about everything. One of his quotes is, well, it could be worse. I'm not sure how, but it could be worse. You know, am I suggesting that, that when we are suffering and in pain and witnessing evil, we should just say, well, you know what? Sure, it's bad, but it could be worse. You know, that, that is false comfort, Okay. What I, what I want you to hear and see is that God is present in your suffering and still in control, even in the midst of evil. He sees, He hears. When His people were enslaved in Egypt, He heard their groaning and delivered them when the time was right. Or think of Hagar, another character from the Abraham story. Um, she was fleeing from Abraham and Sarah because she uh, had been forced to sleep with Abraham and, and, and to become pregnant by him so that Abraham and Sarah could have a child. And then she ran away in fear. She was in the wilderness, pregnant, alone, abandoned, abused, and desperate. And when she was there, the Lord met her and spoke to her and blessed her. And she, in turn, gives God a name. How many people in Scripture get to give God a name? Not many. Hagar is one of them. And in Genesis 16... She, it says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So for all of God's people, the disciples facing the, the fall of Jerusalem, all the way to the disciples who will be called to remain faithful at the tribulation at the very end of the age, and you and me today in the midst of suffering. In the midst of evil, He is still the God who sees, the God who looks after you, and beyond all that, the God who remains in control and has the power at any time to say, that's as far as I let this go. He will not let it go beyond what you can endure. He sets limits on evil and He cuts short the days of suffering for the sake of His children. Amen? That's the promise of God. That whatever pain or suffering or hurt there is, it is a passing thing. It is a temporary thing. As the psalmist writes, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we look forward to a morning that will have no night after it, when the weeping is gone. Child of God, you can endure because God is with you. He sees and He cares. He knows what's happening and He is in control. He is in control and He sets limits on evil. The third way we see the kindness of God is in this passage is made clear in verse 27. It says, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus will return. Amen? Oh, come on. Jesus will return. Amen? Thank you. But that's not what I want to talk about here. What I want us to see here is that in kindness, God reveals Himself clearly. In kindness, God reveals Himself clearly. Look at verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there He is, don't believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If you were here last week, we talked about this idea of false Christs, uh, being anyone who tries to claim a special uh, position of privilege or power or some special calling or special role in God's plan, and they expect you to respond with loyalty and trust and support because they will tell you that in order to follow God, you have to follow them. They are the deliverer. They have the way. Jesus says, no, you, you don't, don't listen to those people. But he also mentions false prophets. A false prophet is someone who claims falsely to speak for God. And even, I mean, notice in these verses, they might even do amazing things in God's name, but God has not sent them. I mean, it says they're doing signs and wonders, miracles. And yet, that does not mean that God is with them. The miracle, the sign, the wonder itself does not mean that they are from God. In fact, God has told His people how to recognize a false prophet versus a true prophet. Uh, He's done it in two places in Deuteronomy. I first want you to look at Deuteronomy 13. We're told that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder that He tells you comes to pass, it's a miracle. It's something like they predicted the future, it came true, they did some sort of miracle, and then He says, let's go after other gods which you've not known. Let us serve these other gods. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the first test or measure of a prophet is no matter what they do, even a miracle, even a a prediction of a future event, if they teach falsehood, if they lead you away from what God has already told you, then you don't listen. Because God may be just testing to see, are you really interested in following Him or are you just going after what's exciting and popular and the shiny new thing that's out there? So that's the first test. The second test is a little later in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how may we know the word that the, that the Lord has not spoken. How do we know if they are not speaking for God? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. And that prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You know, the, a, a while back, I was having coffee with another pastor in our presbytery, and we were sitting outside just, you know, in the days before masks and all that, and just speaking and uh, there's a man the next table over, overhearing us two pastors talking about our churches. And he, he comes closer and pulls up a chair next to us and lets us know. He's like, really interested in what you're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm actually a prophet myself. And I, I serve in this ministry and at this church. And, and I've spoken these prophecies that came to be. And, and I serve with this person. And here's some prophecies. He, he prophesied this. And, and uh, my, my pastor friend, being very astute, said, well, can I just ask, have you ever prophesied something that didn't happen? He says, well, yeah, of course, it's not, it's not exact things. He's like, well, you know what? Deuteronomy 18 tells us you have to die for that. Because, because the test of a prophet in Scripture is not that you get something right. You predict a future event and it happens. I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the astrology pages do that. Ian Landers does that. I mean, it just, it's not getting something right. It's getting nothing wrong. A false prophet 
is anybody who gets even one thing wrong because the Lord does not misspeak. So anybody today who claims to speak God's word and offers prophecies, if they speak one thing that doesn't come true, they are, by scriptural definition, a false prophet. And we reject their words and we do not follow. God does not want His people to be deceived. He is too kind to let us wonder whether or not this is a word of the Lord. But there are vultures all around. Verse 28 says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There are vultures who are eager to descend upon disaster and calamity and unrest. People who thrive on the fear of others and who will take advantage of God's people and lead them astray. Wherever there is this fear and confusion and unrest, the vultures will gather around and try to be something special in the midst of a crisis. And so Jesus warns in verses 25 through 26, look, I'm telling you about it beforehand, guys, so that if they say, look, he's in the wilderness, you don't go there. And if they say, no, he's in this secret room over here, you don't go there. Don't believe it. And when I was serving as a missionary in China, we actually regularly encountered a cult that claimed that Jesus had already returned in a rural village in, this, in central China. He returned in the flesh. He's there. You know what they call themselves? Eastern lightning. Looking at this verse saying, as lightning goes from the east, which obviously means China, and goes to the west, so will be the return of the Son of Man. Other religions and cults will call their followers to, uh, to gather together at a certain time or a certain place, saying that Jesus will be there and meet them there. And Jesus says, it's not ever going to be like that. Because verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, as quickly as that, not like, oh, there it is in the east. Let's wait till he gets over here in the west. Come see, everybody. The, the, Jesus is going to get here soon. No, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be like that. Lightning is not subtle. It is sudden. It is instantaneous. It lights across the sky before you can blink. You cannot hide lightning. It does not dwell in a secret room or in one place and not another. You can't predict it. You can't schedule it. So when it strikes, everyone knows. So it is with the return of Jesus. He will not come in secret. He will not come quietly. He will not appear to some and not to others. When he returns, there will be no mistaking it. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Lord himself will descend from heaven quietly, secretly to get a few people out of the way. No. He will come with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what we expect. Not that we need to sort out some mystery. Not that there's some hidden code in the Bible that tells us how and when these things are going to happen and what it's all going to look like. Child of God, do not worry. Do not fear. You are not missing out. There is not some hidden or secret wisdom that God is hiding from you that you still need to uncover. God in His kindness reveals Himself clearly to you. He has done so in the past. He will do so again. He does not leave His children to wander around in confusion or mystery. What you need to know, God has already revealed. He's not hiding from you. He's not putting in codes and secret messages. 
but is writing plainly for all to see. And when he returns to dwell again with us, there will be no missing it. It will be like the lightning, as sudden and as certain and as visible. God is too kind to play games with us. In the midst of judgment, we see the kindness of God. That's, that's the message today. That even as God judges sin and sinners, He expresses kindness to His children in warning them, in limiting evil and pain, and in revealing Himself clearly. And though Jesus spoke these comforting words about the fall of Jerusalem, which has already taken place long ago, and about the tribulation at the end of the age, nowhere in history does God make these lessons clearer than at the cross of Jesus. And so as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to remember and observe that in the cross of Christ, God warns His people in kindness. He warns us that sin is judged and punished by death. So we either face that judgment ourselves, or Christ steps in the way and receives punishment for us. But either way, He warns us in kindness. And the cross is that warning. In the cross, He warns us to flee His judgment. Because of the cross, God is able to limit evil. Just as God promised to limit the evil of those days, here we see that Jesus took the punishment of God on Himself. And therefore, God's treatment of us can move forward in grace. It doesn't depend on what we deserve and what we've earned. And so He can limit evil because the price and penalty of sin has already been paid. And lastly, in the cross, God reveals Himself clearly to us. We clearly see the judgment and the love of God. We see what price is paid for sin. We see that on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But we also see the love of God poured out that He would stand in our place and receive the punishment we deserved. And so this table today, the bread and the cup, they're not for everybody. Because to eat the bread and drink the cup is a physical confession of faith. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are saying, I am united to Jesus Christ. I am made part of Him. I'm one with Him. He has brought me into His family, not because of anything I've done, but because of His own pleasure in doing so. And therefore, I do not need to pay the price of my sin. He has already paid it. I am committed to living the life that He calls me to live. If, if that's not you, then to eat the bread and drink the cup is to confess with your actions what's not true of your heart. And we call that hypocrisy, and we don't want that for any of you. So if that's not true of you today, if you are not united to Christ, if you have not believed on Him and, and, and received by faith the grace of God, let the bread and the cup go right past. And don't, don't do in your actions what's not true in your heart. But instead, make this a time to reflect upon the kindness of God in the midst of judgment. Either you will receive His kindness or you will receive His judgment.